This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Uh, so uh, let me introduce uh, Dr. Paula Arai, who uh, lives in uh, here in the Bay Area, and she is a Buddhist scholar with a PhD from Harvard University. She has devoted her professional life to um, scholarly study, ethnographic studies, and, um, and just uh, really deep work about uh, Zen in particular and Buddhism. Um, and uh, so I was very, very honored to have uh, Paula be willing to join me this weekend and offer a retreat that's really based on her work called Bringing Zen Home. And Paula wrote the book, a book called Bringing Zen Home, and I'll be touching on that when we speak. She also has a recent book called Painting Enlightenment, and that book is a stunning study in emptiness, uh, exhibiting the artwork of um, Iwasaki Suneo, who um, and um, with including Paula's. Uh, uh, poetry and uh, interpretation of his work. So can't recommend that enough in terms of just something that will move you and inspire you uh, in your everyday practice. So um, let me go ahead and kind of summarize uh, what we talked about this weekend and kind of what came up for people. So we were focused on um, the question really, what is home practice? Uh, or maybe more pertinent is the question, what does it mean to awaken at home? And uh, I've often thought that in American Zen, because of the way it came to us, nothing wrong with this. Uh, in fact, it's quite powerful and beautiful. And the way Zen was brought to uh, us, at least in our lineage, and I think uh, uh, Jikoji's lineage as well, was from uh, the Japanese teachers who came to America and, and uh, brought with them these practices. And although I know Coben was known <clears throat> to sort of be a norm breaker um, in that regard, he is the priest who taught San Francisco Zen Center all the ceremony they use. He wrote out by hand the ritual and passed it, gave it to the leaders of San Francisco Zen Center when they were lost after uh, Suzuki passed away. It was Coben who met them in their grief and gave him those ways. So <laughs> Coben was much younger and he, you know, he, he became a, a real uh, iconoclast, which I'm so grateful for. Um, but he also deeply, deeply honored and deeply knew and understood Zen, the Zen ways that came to us from Japan. So we're kind of doing that now with this question. What is home practice? What is it to awaken at home in a sort of practice way that has been very much embedded in temple practice, has emphasized temple practice? has emphasized the ways of temple practice, even when we're doing home practice, bring the temple practice home. So there's a sort of, because of the way it came to us, which I have deep and abiding respect for, there is a bias in our practice toward awakening in the temple. And I want to, I would like through this, this, our sort of a retreat this weekend was a kind of attempt to open up that question. Why do we see as more valuable awakening in the temple and temple practice than awakening in our everyday lives at home and home and work and marketplace practice? So we began to explore that this weekend. And um, uh, first of all, through the very powerful um, artwork and teaching of uh, Iwasaki Suneo, which you'll get a, a little taste of this morning from Paula, um, we, we really entered into what is emptiness and, the, and how uh, 
we entered completely, really, into the interrelatedness of all being. For me, that's the root of what Iwasaki Suneo is expressing in his work. And that's how it affects my heart, my body, mind, is complete immersion in the interrelatedness of all being, which we could call, another word for that is emptiness. So we began there and we entered into, through Paula's guidance, the many ways that Japanese culture today and and before has an, a long and wide tradition of daily home practice, um, practices that recognize the home as the ground of awakening. And um, we learned this uh, through Paula's uh, work uh, over 14 years of studying ethnographic studies of Japanese women practicing in their homes and bringing healing into the home as the ground of awakening, attending to suffering right here, not in a special place, right here where we are every day where suffering happens, where the child falls and skins the knee, where there is death and loss and generations of, of grief. That's the suffering that these bodhisattvas <laughs> pay attention to and are awake to and hear the cries and right in the home, right in the workplace, right where they are. And that's what we were privileged to enter into through, through Paula's work. And she showed us photos of altars that had six generations of, of uh, memorial plaques there. Six generations. Every time I come here, six generations of my people, of my blood, my karmic stream here, reminding me and, and being with me, accompanying me, my journey, this vast, really, sangha of, of sages who, who, in whatever means, whether we're a convert to Buddhism, like I am, uh, to to uh, these Japanese women who had probably, you know, six generations of Buddhists in there. It's, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's my karmic stream reflected here and how that flows into the world and the meaning of that and how I work with that every day to be skillful and to uh, bring myself in the most awakened way I can into my world every day. So we saw these beautiful photos of sacred spaces. We saw the women at their altars, some of them, and we learned how these, these householders and their families in very ordinary mundane ways are awakening to the here and now, and yet are also part of this greater sangha, unseen sangha around them of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who always have, have engaged in home practice. And you'll notice that, it, that enlightenment stories in Zen rarely does the, does the experience take place in Zazen? Almost always. It is a walk in the forest with the master. It is a sweeping the meditation hall and whack, the, bam, the bamboo hits the, the wood. Whack, awakening. It's in work. It's in, it's in cooking. It's in, uh, it's in relaxing, having conversation. That's where awakening occurs even in the ancient monastic stories. That's what happens. So in our homes, with our families, with our neighbors, with our community, at work, with our work group, with our boss, with our uh, the people we uh, may supervise, at, everywhere, at the bank, uh, you know, at the grocery store, this is the ground of awakening. And if we think it's only at the temple, we miss our lives. Even if we live in the temple, we miss our lives. And, and what a, how many Dharma gates we walk by <laughs> without even noticing them when we, when we cordon off practice to a zaku or a temple or even a place in our home. So 
we explored all that. And it turns out that the, uh, that to be grounded in this, that these practices that the Japanese women are teaching us even today are grounded in healing. Um, they're about care of the sacred, not just sacred objects, but the sacred within us. Uh, the care of self and other. And of course, within the context of emptiness or interrelatedness, care of healing the heart through gratitude, uh, through beauty, through enjoyment of life as it is. And bringing the intent of healing to the self, to the family, the home, the wider community, and of course, um, the Sangha and the world. So how do we engage practice, including the marketplace and the community? I were saying at home, how do we engage practice at home in this wide view with healing energy while using our six senses? So this is a body-based practice. We, we practice with using our six senses to bring this healing uh, way, this healing attitude, healing value uh, to uh, cooking, cleaning, social interactions, and to the carrying on of our lives in the messy, messy uh, world out here. <laughs> the, the messy minutiae of home is what I wrote in my notes. So Dogen talks about this as continuous practice, and he himself wrote an entire fascicle on it. And you know, even Dogen, many of his most famous works is the Genjo Koan, many of which you have studied and read, and some of which we chant in the Zendo at, in monasteries every day were written to lay students who were practicing at home. And Dogen ultimately died in the home of a lay student while going to meet him for practice discussion. So Dogen was devoted to this bringing forth of awakening in the home. And I think it's a sort of a false distinction we've grown accustomed to. <laughs> in America, or maybe I'm just making it up. Well, let me hope I'm just waking, making it up. So this body practice, awakening where we are. So we engaged in an experiential uh, retreat this weekend that was in situ, as Paula, the professor, explained. In other words, where you are, right in the real situation, uh, all at home. And we discussed, so what came up? for people in, those, in the midst of those practices. And some of the questions we took up were things like, what is enough? Or, you know, like, what is enough cleaning? Is this clean? Uh, or cooking. Uh, we talked about the high impact and the great importance of loving ourselves and of, of, of always growing our love for ourselves as a way to have a constant flow of gratitude and, and, and uh, spaciousness for others in our lives, in our everyday practice, when we're rushing through the bank and through the store and, and trying to get home to the kids or, or grandkids or whatever it might be. So in the, in the midst of it all, loving our vulnerability, loving our humanity, uh, including our weaknesses, our failures, our limits, bringing them to the home altar. As a, as a way of honoring the sacred, actually. Um, and honoring our humanity or, or loving our humanity as the ground of compassion and wisdom. In our practice at home, in our families, in our communities, and in the wider sangha, it is our humanity that is the ground of compassion. So without the protection of the temple walls or the temple gate, um, and it's schedule and it's mutual and shared, visible, audible uh, practice flow, very powerful flow, which I love and am honored to have participated in in my practice life. Without that, um, this is what we examined. How do we bring this way, this very way 
not a different, not a lesser way, but this very way to our living room, to our kitchen, to our bedroom, to our bathrooms, to our hallways, to our home, to our workplaces. And, um, and how do we uh, continue to grow beautifully in the mud of, of what is here? Um, so with that, I will turn to Paula, who's going to, I hope, be able to take hosting and show us a little bit of this beautiful, powerful artwork that we had our had an experience with this week. Thank you, Beata. And thank you all for your presence here today. Um, someday I do hope to actually go to Jikoji um, and uh, more to look forward to. So I, I'm going to um, share my screen of a painting of the artist that Beata um, mentioned, Iwasaki Tsuneo. He was a biologist and started painting um, after retirement in his 60s. And he always painted uh, using the Heart Sutra. So the lines of the images are made up of tiny um, lettering or calligraphy of the Heart Sutra. So by making many, many different kinds of images, bubbles, lightning bolts, big, you know, black holes, um, all with the same characters. Of course, that is teaching the, um, about emptiness and interdependence that um, we're all made of the same stuff. So here's this one um, and the theme I wanted to stress this morning is blossoming in the mud. And um, so here you see against the black landscape, luminous dewdrops of compassion trickling off the lotus leaves here into the muddy pond. Mm -hmm. As you know, lotuses only grow in the mud. The shimmering gold stem infused with heart sutra wisdom connects the mud and the lotus blossom. These are the conditions in which a baby Buddha is born. Enlightenment blossoms in the mud. And let me just give you a little more uh, close up of the, oh, disappeared. I was having trouble. You're not seeing, what are you seeing? seeing each other and the oh, yeah okay let me share again i don't know why it jumped off i was just trying to hit play you know hit next mm -hmm. mm. Fine. okay okay sorry this is not as elegant as it could be um, play slideshow and window oh well, the image I see and the image it says it's sharing are not the same. Let's see what happened. It says screen sharing failed. Try later. Um, I'm not a tech person. Any tech people out there? I'm using um, key, key, what is it? Keynote? I wonder. Still won't let me. Um, are there um, any close-ups of that in the book? Are there close-ups of that in the well, book? Okay, I'm, I'm trying that basic rule my son's trying to teach me, turn it off and turn it on. Here we go. Oh, there you are. Beautiful. And let me see if it'll let me change the slide without dropping off. Or anyone know Keynote? Keynote on Zoom, I've realized it's not the same as PowerPoint. Uh, oh, <laughs> we went off again. Okay, I'm gonna. Uh, maybe Stop. go to the key. Oh, can I offer a suggestion? Please. Is right. Yeah, right now, navigate in Keynote to get the slide you want us to see visible and then go back to sharing the screen. It's not elegant, but it might get us at least. Okay, so any, it won't even let me change. I, this happened earlier this morning when I was 
trying to practice. It won't even let me change the slide. Oh, in Keynote, huh? In Keynote. Even when I hit view, slide only. Let me go to view. Oh, this is, well, this is blossoming in the mud. Um, right. Totally. This is. <laughs> We're living it all together. <laughs> this is. All together now. Blossoming in the mud. <laughs> okay. Maybe you could Let's try closing see. Keynote and starting it again. Okay. Oh, there we go. Oh. We got a close up. Oh, starting. Okay. Well, this worked for one slide change. So this is where you get a chance to see the tiny characters. That's all the Heart Sutra. And um, that's the first Chinese character for the title, Han Yashingyo. That's the Han, um, that Maka in... Um, Sanskrit. Um, let's see. I'm going to hit, just change the slide. <gasps> it worked. All right. The gremlins are gone. All right. And that is the character for heart. And you see in a lotus um, leaf. And look at, um, this is, you know, being a scientist, he was all about um, being uh detail specific. So he did the reflection of the Heart Sutra upside down and backwards. I mean, he was such a careful um, thinker. And the size of this is quite small. The characters, if you read Chinese characters, they're very well balanced, they're clear, legible. Um, and uh, it was for him a meditation, a practice that he did. He always kept incense lit, chanted the Heart Sutra before he did any work for the day. Um, he even said that if he had a nightmare, um, he couldn't work for days because his mind and body had to be stable enough. Um, and this is a tremendous uh, stability um, to do this because he's painting in gold and gold is has kind of a mind of its own. I'm not a painter, but it's not like ink that'll kind of let you coax it where to go. Gold just does not want to go where you want it. And so it takes tremendous patience. Um, so here we go back to the full image so you can see. Um, and so what this painting um, shows us, um, of course, that lotuses blossom in the mud, of course, the lotus, uh, signifying enlightenment, um, and the mud um, is where the three poisons um, thrive. And but these are the conditions that we live in. Um, the mud is always there, and the conditions of nirvana are always available. And so we can always take any action, be motivated by the poisons, delusion, desire, and aversion, and our conditions will be um, very muddy, um, be suffering. But likewise, impermanence and interdependence is always occurring. So the conditions for nirvana are always available, and it's a matter of more of where you put your focus, where your consciousness um, awakens. And um, it's an ongoing practice as Beata was saying that um, because every given moment you could turn a situation of bliss into suffering. And Nirvana is not dependent on some other specific conditions. The conditions of nirvana are always there. Um, and uh, how to make that choice for nirvana and not um, samsara is, is what practice is about. And actually the word, um, I know in English, the word practice works well, um, but in Japanese, the word practice is usually reserved 
for talking about strict monastic practice, and even then they don't use the word a lot. Um, people in uh, home, uh, domestic lay people, they almost never use practice to describe what they do because they just live their lives. And um, so not making it something special is part of the recipe for how you integrate the Dharma into daily life, because it's not doing something special, but it's being aware of how you do everything, how you wash the dishes, how you wipe the floor, how you cook, how you set a plate down on the table for others to enjoy, how you handle the pots and pans when you're washing them. And um, so to not use the word practice um, is a way to keep choosing the consciousness of we're all interrelated and there is no leaving, there is no separating. Um, you just like you cannot leave the mud, um, you must do all this in the mud. Um, the poisons are always available to drive us. So how to keep choosing not to be motivated by the poisons when they're always there. Um, sometimes I think of it um, with like with addictions. Um, if you've had um, addiction, say to alcohol, in a way to stop, and I don't mean to minimize or compare, but just to make the point that you can stop drinking alcohol but if you have an eating disorder, you have to keep eating. And so that's kind of the flavor of living in the mud. You're always in the mud and you don't want to live out of the poisons, but you have to stay in the mud. You have to eat, um, which makes it hard if you have an eating disorder, how to eat in a way that you're still getting nourished but not nourished by the poisons. Um, this is where we are. The, this is our condition. Um, so how do we blossom here? Um, this is our home, our only home. We cannot leave it. We cannot um, fall out of the vast interdependent flux of the universe. Um, even dying doesn't help <laughs> because you just keep transforming. Um, and there's nowhere else to go. This is our home. Our home is both mud and enlightenment, always. So thinking about how do you then uh, put your consciousness, your body, mind more focused on the blossom, the blossoming dynamic uh, versus uh, the poisons. I think of it, I um, play the violin. So tuning strings has always been a part of my life. And so tuning the string of your heart, of your body, mind to be in sync with that greater flux of interdependence in which we live. So to listen to the reverberations of the universe, to, to get in tune with it. So um, that things that can help us get in tune um, are, um, if it's not a string, a bell works really well for me. Um, just hearing the bell and calming down enough to let the ver reverberation of the bell, um, to get in sync with that frequency, um, then helps expand the sensory experience from just your own internal dynamics. And, uh, you know, sound waves just keep carrying out and beyond. Um, so that's one way to expand your experience. 
And also, um, so finding out what are you in tune with? Checking in with yourself. Am I in tune with the greater interdependent flux? Or am I only in tune with, I really don't want to, you know, what, uh, wash the dishes right now, but they need to be washed. And what is that you're in tune with? So checking in, getting in tune with um, the universe, though, is pretty big, pretty hard. And as soon as you aim for it, you miss the target because aiming narrows. Um, so there, you can ritualize activities. Ritualize uh, means uh, you encode an action with meaning. And so you do give thought, what does this mean to set this plate down? You know, if the plate is a Buddha, the table is a Buddha, you know, how do you then set down the plate in this encoded manner, encoding everything with that meaning of everything is Buddha? Um, and so when you take time to think through the activities you need to do each day and ritualize it and code it with the meaning, and then you can just tune in to doing that activity in that way. And then, um, you know, more and more through your daily life, um, you ritualize the um, activity. So you're, it's a way to keep yourself in tune with the greater flux um, without having to, um, uh, make it up every single time. It's staying in tune with it every single time. I hope this is making some sense. Um, and then uh, uh, looking at um, mud in terms of the different dimensions that Beata had mentioned, you know, the mud of the personal realm, um, the mud in the community, the family, the sangha, the society, the whole political world, um, and also the mud of the environment, um, you know, real mud, um, which is lovely, wonderful, but then when there are toxins in the mud or, you know, of course, as we're facing a climate crisis. Um, so all these different muddy realms and thinking about how to ritualize, just choose a few um, ways to ritualize activities that focus on the lotus blossom of the personal, the communal lotus blossom, the environmental lotus blossom, and um, just integrate it into your daily life and it becomes a way of being, um, not something special, not practice, um, but just being. So may we all enjoy blossoming in the mud. Thank you. So we'd love to hear from you. How, how do you bring Zen home? How, how do you engage the plate and the countertop, the uh, steering wheel and <laughs> your uh, grip? <laughs> how do you work with the moments of your everyday life in a way that wakes you up, in a way that is um, coming from nirvana and recognizing samsara? How do you bring healing home? If you can unmute though, there you go. Thank you. I'm jump in since I was very inspired by the weekend and uh, took, took the time. I'm very grateful I took the time to be with both of you, Paula and Beata and the, and the, the, the group we had. Uh, and this morning I'm still processing and I'm uh, looking at at uh, this morning's practice, again, appreciating the new understandings of what it is 
to be on the cushion. As you mentioned, the rituals in the zendo and the, what is that for me here at home with my own home altar? What is it, that experience? And then immediately off the cushion. And that was the aha yesterday when I realized uh, that I look at being on the cushion and then going kind of straight to the engaged Buddhism political realm or the, the necessities that I feel are pressing uh, in the world, or even the necessities of my home life taking care of uh, my husband and my space here. But what I was not seeing with such wonderful illumination is that immediate environment. So today, for instance, I, I, I often, instead of going straight from a nightmare, which I had for the night, to the cushion, I go outside and I greet the morning and I check out the weather and I look at the kind of walk the property and say hello. And um, that I understand now is that immediate off the cushion for me. Just get the temperature of the day, literally and figuratively. Get the, where am I in this slightly enlarged space? Then I sit. So, um, and then I am more aware of the next steps of honoring the moment and honoring the bigger picture. So uh, instead of going into specifics of, of uh, those enlightened moments that I found yesterday, I'll, I'll leave it there with gratitude. Thank you, Toba. Thank you both so much for this beautiful talk today. And uh, I really, it, what, what, as they say, resonated with me so much was how it was woven with healing and healing just as a general outlook, you know, to simplify things as a way of just a remembrance of interacting with everything in a way that is healing. That's a marvelous strategy, perhaps, for, you know, keeping my head above water, you know, in these days. Um, I was going to just share, too, that I was reading, re-reading re John Kabat-Zinn, Full Catastrophe Living, and his definition of healing is coming to terms with things as they are. And so it's a very different one because he was, of course, working with people who had chronic diseases that were not uh, being, you know, remedied by any kind of therapy or, you know, there was nothing left to do in for, for many of the people that he started working with. So by re rethinking of what healing is, coming to terms with what is, it really was very different than the idea of this perfection of wellness is the definition of healing. And, and that has really helped me um, coming to terms. You know, I think of terms, there's a price usually in a term that you have to pay, you know, and in some, in some ways our practice, as I think of it, demands that we pay a certain price. And that price is doing our practice when there's other things perhaps that are pulling us or <laughs> knocking or yelling for our attention. And, and uh, so there's a definite price and it's over time. Sometimes it's paid over time as this must be too, to kind of prepare our ground for the potential for Satori. And so anyway, I, I really love what you shared today and, and the beauty of the art and being able to see all of that was just 
just marvelous. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. If I could add a little note, um, in Japanese, there's a word skiao, which is used for when you have interactions with a friend, not a friend that you're close, but you haven't seen each other in 10 years, but someone you, you know, we haven't been skiowing much with the pandemic, but we remember you could meet somebody, take a walk, have some coffee. And so it's that kind of interaction. And um, doctors even will use that verb to how are you going to skiow with your condition? So it's a way of interacting. You can interact by being in denial. You can interact by, wow, today my knee hurts, so I'm not going to move about as much. And so how you choose to skiow is, you know, as Taizan was saying, if you're doing it in this healing mode of accepting the conditions um, that are there, not resisting them, that that's, that's what these women uh, taught me uh, healing means to them. It's a, a mode of living, not a cause and effect um, result. Well, how do you spell that? I, I want to. Yeah, it's a T S U K I Ski T S U Ski K I A U. There are no diphthongs in Japanese. So it's ski au. And I write about it in the book, Bringing Zen Home. But Pamela, did you want to share? Yeah. Yes. Um, the time together was really very precious to me. And I'm very grateful to Beata and Paula. And there were several things that will stay with me. And uh, along the lines of healing, this, I, one of you said, or maybe it was one of us who said it, all of us together said it, that healing, um, a piece of healing is removing the obstacles between us and the greater whole. And I, I really get that. It really, really resonates with me. Um, every time I choose to be kind, there's that feeling of repairing whatever is um, not healed, both in myself and, you know, kind of rippling out from me. Uh, that, that's an important thing um, for me. It's a very important thing. Uh, the other thing I really appreciated about this experience of noticing the cleaning, and for me especially cooking, it was the idea that there was nothing special at all about any of this. Nothing special. It was, you know, for me, it was all about my yeast, my bread that I'm building for sourdough and making dinner. But um, everything is so ordinary and so exquisitely, astonishingly beautiful. You know, this yeast that's growing, it's not even attractive probably by most people's standards. But, you know, I grew it out of the thin air and it feeds people. And it grows magically on my, in a jar on my counter. And it just went on and on from there. So it was incredibly um, privileged kind of experience to have permission really to worship, <laughs> to worship everything, you know? And I'm, I'm grateful, I'm very grateful to you too and to everyone uh, who was there and all of you too, to the greater Sangha. So thank you. Brandy? Yeah, yeah. Thank you both. That was uh, that was great. Um, I I guess um, when I'm out and about and I'm getting pretty busy and you know I'm in the car or doing this or doing that and and I find you know my mind just kind of drifting off here, drifting off there, um, uh, and not thinking too much about samsara nirvana. <laughs> though it's still there I'm sure <laughs> but anyway this is from the advice I've got from a, a 
some emails from a Dharma sister about the word here. Mm-hmm. And almost the word here is a, uh, almost a mantra or a koan or a, but I'll find myself when I'm <laughs> really, really kind of going, I'll catch myself and it's almost like a slap in the face. I'll go, I just do this little kind of chant here, here, here. And finally, after I say it a few times, I don't have to say it anymore. All of a sudden, the environment becomes a little more alive and aware. And uh, my mind is what? Just a little bit more here, but it's a very simple thing. And, uh, but it's been, <laughs> it's been helpful. Um, so Great. just the word here, so. And uh, I'm sure there's other little techniques <laughs> people know about, but yeah. Okay, thanks. Thank you. That's the ordinary right there. Just uh, here it is at every moment available. Yeah. And, and before I knew which here you meant, I was thinking it could be H-E-A-R, which is all, <laughs> um, you know, the senses. Yeah. Um, what am I hearing now? And of course, you know, Unknown hearing the cries of the world. So just that one here, you could have that, you know, multiple meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Is there, is there someone over in Jikoji events window? <laughs> oh, thanks for seeing me. Um, <laughs> there were two, and one of them went away, so I'm not sure. Oh, uh, the one with the hand. Raise hand. Oh, there's Jikoji events. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Okay. Um, Thank you both so much. It's uh, lovely to hear your words and uh, feel your your presence and your enthusiasm for uh, this pursuit. Um, I noticed some things about the storytelling. Um, Paul, I noticed... Uh, as you were telling us of the painter um, who was, you know, using the Heart Sutra and had this very meticulous and extraordinary technique. And you mentioned how that person, um, sometimes if he was disturbed by something like a nightmare, he found himself unable to continue with the painting practice, needed to do something we we might think of as a self-care for a while to regain the balance necessary. And um, so that's a bit of a background for the place I'm trying to get to. Um, I'm often a roundabout person, so hang on, I'll keep trying. Um, Also something you said, Paula, that is stuck with me, which is this idea of ritualizing, which is to, uh, I think I jotted down, to encode an action with meaning. Now, and from my own personal experience, so to go to, to, to caring for myself, if I've been upset or find my, my nerves are frayed and I need to regroup or I, I want to, I guess I need to look at that, I want to be different than I actually am in that moment. That happens to me often. Um, and I find one of the things that's most difficult for me to deal with is to be interrupted when I'm trying to take care of myself or when I think I have set my sights on something that's very important. And maybe it's self-care. I need to get my balance back so that I can be at my best to help those around me. And I've started my routine of how I take care of myself and I'm interrupted by the world. And I have trouble with that. And it occurred to me one of these ways to ascribe meaning to things, to, to, to ritualize something, to encode an action with meaning, is that is to do agata. Agata? How do you say that? There's like a, a little ritual, usually a, a, yeah. a saying that goes. And I find that I've noticed these gatas and this setting of intention or encoding something with meaning is all about, so far in my experience, my will wanting to have something to cling on to for my actions. And I'm wondering if it might help me more if I could have a ritual, a ritual associated with being interrupted. 
some kind of gatha that helps me get through when I, it isn't my will that all of a sudden is, seems to be in my face. It's something that maybe interrupts my good practice or my great intent. How can I meet something like that? How can I ritualize that? How can I give that meaning when all of a sudden I find that I've been thwarted? Um, and you know, the, the schema that I have now is that something else, something outside of me made this happen and it's a problem and I'm put off balance, but how can I, how could I, what's a gata you might give me to ritualize that annoying interruption with meaning, something that seems to have come from the outside mm -hmm. rather than, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time creating these rituals that are all about our own intent arising from within ourselves. Mm. Help find a ritual for when I'm being interrupted. Yeah, well, thank you for that. That's um, something I think a lot of us um, are familiar with that phenomenon. Um, and the tradition has recognized it as well. You're saying gata, which is maybe a little bit longer, more song-like, but um, mantras are uh, uh, usually shorter um, and they are replete through Buddhist practices uh, from very early on that healing and tending to daily life, when you start looking more carefully at the evidence that we do have, um, it's much more about that than what Buddhist scholars in the West have tried to paint the Buddhist tradition as. Um, this focus on you know emptiness and um, enlightenment and most people were not there most people were trying to get through their day and so talismans and amulets and mantras are ubiquitous throughout buddhist history um, more so than um, people studying discourses and meditating and um so I think of um, mantra in one sense as like I was explaining of, you know, tuning a string, you're trying to get that particular pitch. Well, tuning um, yourself to that greater vibration is not just me. It's uh, trying to fit in with the, get reintegrate, become aware of how you are integrated in this bigger context. And that's, I think how mantras help um, and so a favored mantra among the Japanese women I worked with, um, it's in the Lotus Sutra, 25th chapter. Um, it, it's Nenpi Kanoniki, which means um, focusing on the power of Kanon, which that takes you to, you know, that compassionate mode of connecting. Um, and uh, so people will, um, you know, just nempi kano niki nempi kano niki nempi kano niki. Or perhaps you've heard of the in the in the Pure Land traditions, chanting Namo Amida Butsu, which you know is praise to the um, Buddha of Infinite Light and Life. Um, and whatever, so in ritualizing a phrase. Uh, whatever the actual content of the wording means, you can use it, you can ritualize it as this is how I get back um, in touch with the greater self, with the greater world. Um, and Namu Amida Butsu is used in that way um, in the Pure Land tradition. Um, Zen uses in terms of mantra in Japan, nempi kano niki, especially among women, is very common but not unique to women. Um, but perhaps in trying to embody compassion, that's why that nempi kano niki is uh, favored. Um, but just like the gentleman who talked about here. Um, so, so you make up, that's one thing I found about the ritualization is it's tailored to the specifics of the person. It has to fit your aesthetic sensibilities, you know, your language that you want to use. Um, 
Although historically in Buddhism, you do see evidence that sometimes they didn't translate because it seemed more powerful than if it was in your um, in a colloquial language, because that what you wanted more power, not just what you're familiar with. So it just depends. So being creative, making it up, what works for you, experimenting, that's what these women taught me. Um, that's the homemade rituals are the most effective because they get to the interstices of the, the specific need. Um, and because you can't make yourself like something better than another. Um, it just, you do like certain things and use that. Um, so uh, yes, we uh, have fun trying to find uh, something you can create if you want, or use some of these other mantras that are out there. Thank you, very helpful. I'd like to mention one thing as well, which where my mind goes is a much simpler, <laughs> a simpler place because I'm not a scholar. Um, but uh, so I really appreciate what, what Paula said and how broad her understanding of this is in, in uh, you know, as she has studied it. I love here. I also think for me, my mind cuts right through this too. Uh, so, oh, interruption? Hmm, just this too. Um, this too is my practice. This too is what's happening right now. Just this too um, as a way to remind the mind. Oh yeah, wait a minute. This isn't something out there that interrupted me. It's just this too. Um, and uh, so some, so, so uh, just like in Zazen, when we're sitting silently and we hear the roar of the uh, road, you know, we don't run out and put up a stop sign for 40 minutes, you know, to have silence in the Zendo. We just say, oh, this too. We don't move. We don't, you know, we just, oh, okay. There's, there's you know, there, this too. We don't even have to name it. We don't have to get wrapped in it. We just, Oh, this too. It's all part of the meditation. It's all the person sitting next to you, grinding their teeth for 40 minutes. This too. That's all part of it. The heater that clicks on and off constantly. Oh, this too. Right. I could be annoyed. I could be, have any number of ribbons. It's not about me. It's, it's just this too. It's, it's, so I offer that as a possible very short dot. <laughs> Thank you, Beata. And both of those responses bring a, a, a lightness in me that helps me not only say this too, but ah, oh, look what else is here. And look, my irritation is here. Welcome in. Hey, yes. There's room for everything. I, oh, you too. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I couldn't show up to this uh, session because uh, I needed to work this weekend. Well, I'm happy I, had to, I need to work to take care of yeah. some stuff. But for some reason, when one of you was talking about healing, uh, Zen Master Paul McCartney came to my mind. Huh? Uh, uh, <laughs> which I usually go to music and poetry for myself for healing. Uh, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be. So I just want to share that. And also, um, when I when I have uh, uh, irritation, <laughs> I have very hot, hot temper. It's very difficult for me. I catch it afterwards, and I feel regret. Mm -hmm. But I've started to imagine Angie in front of my face without a word, mm -hmm. her demeanor, yeah. and that usually softens something. If I can, if I, I've used I've used it a few times. Sometimes I'm too spaced out, and I do my reaction, but having your face in front of me immediately like makes me drop stuff without words. Thank yeah. you. I'm, I wish I could be with all of you, but I am with you now, so. Thank you. Does Angie know that? I, I think that would be so moving to her to know. Um, no, I haven't told her. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. I, I, I may use Angie that way too. I hope she wouldn't mind. <laughs> Has that effect on a lot of people. He's perfect. He's perfect. Uh, Just yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
<laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.